In today's episode, I'll be talking with the fantastic Omar Chowdhury from the 21st Club. This is one of four podcasts talking about the future of the football industry. Okay, so um, Omar, we've been lucky enough to be involved in um, some really interesting club transactions over the years. And um, it's obviously a great part of the industry to be involved in working with lots of different owners, investors, directors, chairmen, etc. I guess the ultimate question that I get asked a lot, sometimes by them and sometimes by others, is why buy a football club in the first place? Yeah, uh, it's extraordinary when you think about it, right? I mean, there, there's that saying, isn't it? The quickest way to become a millionaire is to be a billionaire and, and buy a football club. <laughs> it's um, historically a massive loss making industry. Broadcast rights have changed that to a degree, and so Premier League clubs have been more attractive to buy. Uh, but running a football club is an extremely stressful business where you are likely to suddenly lose money on, on the operating costs of the club. Mm. Um, I think what you know a lot of owners will be interested in, in sport is raising profile. Uh, it's clearly a big part of it. Being able to own a football club is just cool. I don't think any of us would like to do that. Um, so that's an incentive behind it. But then also there are you know clubs that are able to make capital gains um, you know through either through improving their performance um, on the pitch or improving their brand or getting a stadium in and so on. So there, there is opportunity to make money for clubs if you do it right. And I think um, more and more of the investors that are coming into the game are thinking about it in that prism, um, which which I think is good for everyone, really, because the last thing you want is bad owners taking charge of clubs, letting them run to the ground, and then obviously everyone, everyone loses out. Well, what's the answer that you get when... Um, when you ask the ask owners why they why they're buying a particular club, well, it, there can be lots and lots of different reasons of it. I mean, if you again without keeping on using Liverpool examples, we've got you know a few years ago now when FSG bought Liverpool, you know from days from administration, I, I guess effectively they saw uh, a, a very much undervalued brand at a pretty much bargain price that they could bring their commercial acumen to bear to I guess take I mean I'm not sure, quite sure what would be Liverpool valued at but probably in in the significant billions of pounds range now and I think linked into that um, is the, the the commercial reality that when clubs as we've talked about in, in previous content um, you know are able to earn upwards of 150 160 million pounds from participating and doing well in the Premier League that's a you know significant amount of money you know we talk about the R word the relegation word being you know that risk factor but but the other element of all of this in terms of valuation is it's a question I got asked an awful lot and still continues to do, which is FFP, financial fair play, and loss-making clubs or profit-making clubs over the last few years. And, you know, the, the historic figures did not look pretty in terms of um, Premier League, but across the European divide, you know, just before UEFA financial fair play regulations came in, Collective clubs that were participating in UEFA competition would make a collective loss of almost 1.7 billion pound, a billion euros. Sorry, um, change that up a few years to the EPL figures that we mentioned in the book, um, where um, 18 out of the 20 Premier League clubs for the 16-17 season made profit. Mm-hmm. Last year, those figures dropped a little bit. Those numbers of clubs making profit dropped a little bit. But on the whole, we're seeing you know a sea change in my mind. You know, take away the outliers of Barry, unfortunately, and Bolton to an extent. But the sea change generally is is that most clubs are living within their means and are having to live within their means at least at a higher level because of the regulations that um, that impact. And so, 
I think from you know it's easy to say why own a club that the que- the query about then the evolution from why owning a club is how do you value a club mm-hmm. I guess ultimately is and it'd be really interesting for your thoughts on that because you know some clubs can be overvalued for particular reasons undervalued in some ways you know evaluation will sometimes be dependent on a lot of legal and uh, accounting or tax due diligence but actually in my mind and also again some of the transactions we've been lucky enough to work together you know a growing amount of perception is due to um, on-field decision making architecture players etc it'd be great to get your insights on some of that yeah you're absolutely right historically it's there's been whenever someone wanted to buy a club you do the accounting due diligence and you do the legal due diligence and as an owner you'd watch the team on the pitch and you make an assessment as to whether you're from a sporting perspective it made sense um, but the biggest challenge in football particularly in football is that as a low scoring sport teams might not be as good or bad as you think uh, and we're also dealing with athletes here who peak and get worse so there's a couple of good case studies or good cases of teams that have been potentially over undervalued uh, there are teams out there that have been doing well in the league so they might have finished in the top half uh, but actually they've not been one of the better teams at creating chances and, and allowing chances they've perhaps got a little bit lucky had a bit of a hot streak and because the season's only 38 games a team only has to get lucky in three or four games and suddenly from being a side that might finish 50 they're a side that finishes 8th and that puts a very different spin on certainly from the, sell, the selling club. If you if you if you're the owner who's looking to sell the club, you're suddenly going well with the eighth best team in the country. Whereas actually, if you look at some of the under, underlying numbers, which is what we do for for investors, you can say, well, actually, no, you're, you're the fifteenth best team in the country, and instead of having a three percent risk of relegation next year, you've actually got a twenty five percent risk of relegation next year, which is massive because obviously the moment a club gets relegated, their their value tanks. So that could be one of the reasons a club might be overvalued. Uh, another reason as well is on on the players within the squad. So I think a, a great case might be um, Fulham a few years ago um, when Shai Khan bought the club, I think it was in 2013. Um, Fulham had been consistently a Premier League team. They'd been in the division for over 10 years. Um, but they'd gone through their latest cycle of players and they were just getting old. Well, they were actually quite old. They had a big chunk of players who were 30 plus in their squad. They had a lot of young players coming through that essentially nothing in the middle. Uh, and so the season in which he bought the club, that squad kind of tipped over the edge and there, there were past peak performance and, and they were subsequently relegated. And it's very easy to assess a team based on what you've seen and think what, what I've seen is what I get when really there's actually a predictive element to what you're trying to do. Um, and that's where that's where things get challenging. That's where you need the numbers in order to do that because it's it's not easy just kind of doing it based on based on your eye. Exactly, and I think one of the things that um, whenever I speak to prospective owners of clubs now, I think one of the the uh, undervalued portions can sometimes be that playing squad. And I can speak from my experience is that you know usually when that term sheet or that deal sheet is agreed with an indicative number mm. it's probably uh, based on um, particular commercial multipliers rather than a deep dive into the playing squad potentially and in my experience sometimes when that type of playing squad analysis is done and I know you've done um, a few really interesting ones that we've been involved in that I've had the the privilege of being able to read as well um, is player combinations for example um, underlying you know squad dynamics um, legacy etc but the, the interesting thing that I find as well is that 
you know, sometimes it might be that there are three or four very good up-and-coming players um, that make the transaction possibly quite economical, is the truth, in a day that when we're talking previously about transfers where, um, you know, a good up-and-coming player who may be breaking into the England setup, for example, for the first time, you know, James Madison, for example, may be worth upwards of 70 or 80 million pounds um, without playing too many England games just yet. Um, you know, having two or three outstanding England or international players in your youth squads breaking into the first team can sometimes be making club valuation seem quite um, uh, conservative, is the truth. Yeah. And in the same way as, for example, you know, and this is just me for an outlook, uh, outliers perspective, looking at. Crystal Palace, as one example might go, is that you know selling Juan Bissaka for fifty million pounds, and let's just say, for argument's sake, that Palace has a valuation of two hundred million pounds. Let's say, for example, um, you know it's pretty unusual for one or two players, if you include Wilfred Zaha with the rejected bid late in the window, that two players could be worth more than half of the enterprise value of a particular company. Yeah. That's how, in a way, strange um, club valuations can yeah. be, depending on particular transfer activity that the club is either buying or selling accordingly yeah and I'm sure there's been plenty of cases where the value of the squad is actually greater than the transaction value um, which is in part because you know an owner can't just go in and sell all the players because then the the, the actual value of the, the club itself collapses so it's it's a di- it's a difficult one almost to get your head around that you can have 50 million pound players but actually the, the value of the team because of the risk of relegation is, is so high it isn't actually they aren't necessarily one-to-one correlated. There might be some kind of um, the differences that exist there. I think one of the interesting things to discuss is around Premier League transactions versus um, Football League transactions. You know, we've spoken a little bit about uh, before about broadcast monies plateauing. Does that mean a Premier League club is less interesting now and actually the interest might be in getting a championship or even League 1, League 2 clubs? Yeah, I think there's there's a bit of a drawbridge effect, is the truth, is that I think because of the huge monies in play in the Premier League and effectively on offer for championship clubs being able to break into the Premier League on parachute payments, etc., is, you know, generally you're, you're obviously paying a premium for a club in the Premier League because you're guaranteed those monies for a certain period of time. That premium can be significant. Um, the same is also true of, the, of a championship club in my experience as well because the premium you're paying tends to be a loss-making club because effectively within the FFP constraints, still sustainability constraints, um, you know, clubs in the championship are trying to get to the, the holy grail of the, of the Premier League, which is costly um, and time-consuming in a very competitive, uber-competitive um, second league. The query then with um, potentially buying clubs in League One or League Two is, I guess, not necessarily the the, the solidarity sums because they're not hugely significant. That they are in the millions, but not hugely significant in the same way. Um, is whether you feel you can put a good team together post transaction. Um, to be able to leverage particular types of competitive advantage if it is recruitment, if it is scouting if it is a particular ethos if it's a particular playing style if it's with a certain manager that you know will work at that level which gives you a good enough chance you know, I, I guess you can see that a lot more than we can in a lot of the work that you do it is, you know, are you going to pay um, a certain amount of money for a club which maybe doesn't have a great history of success but at the same time you can put in new and interesting 
interesting business methods into a particular club, which may create more of a competitive advantage to yeah. succeed. Yeah, it's, it's there's almost two ways you can look at it at, at that level, at that League One level. So one way might be, if you go back a couple of years, a Luton Town. So at the time, we actually thought Luton Town, when they were in League Two, we thought they were as good as some championship teams. Um, and so that there's a club that's operating well that just happens to be below mm-hmm. its natural level if you like its, its natural performance level so as an investor that would have been a really interesting club to invest in at the time because you could almost just let it be and it would naturally rise up rise up the division so that's kind of your your well-oiled club that you're just taking advantage of the fact that maybe they're a bit unlucky in a couple of playoff mm-hmm. matches for example the other one is targeting the basket cases which is kind of a bit what you were alluding to there is like can you identify the clubs that are being run horribly like everything that's gone wrong you know they've recruited badly the academy's rubbish they've not got a great head coach and then maybe the the fans aren't attending the games because they don't want to see the team anymore can you find those clubs that and then have a compelling strategy or, or a, um, a a strong strategy in order to turn, to turn those clubs around and I think I think more and more investors will look at that because I think the Premier League you're right it's it's so the values are so high you are paying that premium because you've got that guaranteed money for, for X years including the parachute payments that clubs are going to that investors are potentially going to have to be smarter at identifying clubs lower down the pyramid but the fact is those clubs lower down the pyramid aren't um, as well known so if you're an investor from the US or an investor from the Middle East then you're not going to know about those teams, are you? You, you, you know, you're going to know about your Spurs and, and Liverpools, but you're not going to know about Oldham or Rochdale. Um, so that's where I guess you guys come in. You well, hopefully, yeah, and, and yourselves on, on identifying identifying those, those clubs in the first place. Exactly, and I think. Um, that feeds into the sort of post-acquisition element of how you structure on-field and off-field sporting and commercial elements to, to try and transition to the club that an owner or investor wants to effectively um, you know, be identified with and to bring that ethos in. But ultimately, the other thing that um, I think would be interesting to touch upon, um, at least for a few minutes, is you know, talking about the rationale and philosophy for why investors might actually invest in more than one club. Now, it's a growing trend. We've seen it with the City Group, for example, and others. Um, you know, from a from a sporting perspective, at least, what is so attractive about um, owning multiple clubs and, I guess, sharing in those economies of scale? Too? Yeah. So, I think the... <laughs> For, for, for your elite level clubs, so a Man City, for example, the opportunity, you know, if you've got a kid in the Man City Academy, it, the gap between the academy and the first team is so big that for him to jump into the first team is really, really difficult. So the opportunity to have clubs, clubs globally that you could potentially loan to and give special experiences to is, is, a, is a very kind of logical approach to it. Um, but also to source the talent globally in order to um, to get them into the Man City first team eventually as well as a big thing. So, you know, City Football Group having a club in Uruguay, for example, which we know, you know, pound for pound is one of the best football, if not the best football nation in the world. Um, you know, if, if you're a young kid in Uruguay and you see this club that's owned by City Football Group, you're potentially more attracted to it because you know that there's potentially a pathway yeah. through to um, to City's first team. And, and, you know, if you are a kid at... Um, 
in Uruguay in, in, in the City Football Group, then you're going to be on a whiteboard somewhere in, um, in Manchester and your name's going to be tracked. So that's quite attractive for, for the players. Um, as you go down um, the levels, so there's plenty of um, multi-club ownership groups that aren't at Man City's level. Um, again, the talent transfer is quite interesting. If a player isn't working out in a particular country, for whatever reason, cultural, language, or whatever, that you can potentially move them across, you know, relatively pain-free. Um, you know, we've spoken before about exit markets for players. Yeah. Having another club is, is a very easy exit market, potentially, um, for a player. Um, and then probably the third benefit is, is the IP um, economy of scope, if you like. So um, on, on the recruitment side, um, for example, instead of having, you know, two scouts, one at each club, scouting one player you're, you're able to have either two scouts scouting more players um, and all that knowledge all the scouting reports coming back into the same group or you only need half the scouts right um, and, and you can lower the cost base that way so um, that's that's a very clear benefit and the sharing of IP around you know what set pieces work you know how do we maximise home advantage all those different types of things um, come into the come into the strategic conversation and I think a couple of other bits um, as well which are interesting to note is you know um Two things that I was thinking about that have come into play at different different times. One is um, uh, the immigration rules um, around um, uh, player migration is the truth as well. Is that if you have particular players at particular clubs around the world, it might be that City Group, for example, can't bring a Brazilian into the UK because he's only 17 years old and isn't playing for his national team and isn't an exceptional talent just yet. But could that? Uh, player go and play in Melbourne or yeah. could he go and play in Europe or could he go and play in the MLS for example for a particular period of time that to me sounds like um, quite an interesting pathway option available which if you are just one owner of one club becomes more difficult to a degree are you juggling lots of talent across lots of different uh, particular regions yes potentially and I guess from an economic perspective um, uh, there must be some um, quite interesting logical rationale around talent identification because if for example you are uh, Moy who's at Huddersfield now for example he was at Melbourne I think originally bought by Man City um, City effectively got the benefit of his transfer free to, free to Huddersfield which presumably more than paid for the club yeah, potentially yeah. um, so again it feels like it can be a bit arbitrary sometimes in terms of transfer fees as we keep talking about but the truth is is that you know three or four big transfers even over a two or three windows or more may actually cover the cost of particular ongoing costs or transaction costs for particular clubs bearing in mind the talent of the players that a particular club in a particular area is able yeah. to, to uncover well if you go off the principle that you know talent is kind of universal but opportunity isn't mm. then if you're a Man City or an Ajax is probably a good case study if you're able to take good coaches to foreign countries where the talent exists and you're able to develop that talent um, and you have them within your system then you suddenly got access to an enormous talent pool that you might not have had um, previously so you know clubs are increasingly global in their in their perspective particularly the top ones and so being able to access that talent all over the place is, is massive one of the questions I want to ask you though on multi-club ownership is, is the sporting integrity side of it because I know that's something that you're quite passionate about is if you've got two teams Obviously, multi-club ownership is unlikely or prohibited within an individual country, but you're getting potentially teams coming up against each other in Europe. And then just generally, it affects the global economy when you've got teams linked to other clubs that might be competing against other teams. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's been a couple of seminal cases, one recently involving the two Red Bull clubs, actually. Um, but previously it was um, the, uh, the company Enic, which still owns um, Spurs, but owns a number of clubs, including uh, Slavia Prague and AK Athens and others um, at the turn of the millennia, actually. And the, the question really that you wait for us, so this, this is effectively an issue, exactly as you pointed out, not when... Um, not when club, well, not when one owner is owning two clubs in the same league, because that's usually prohibited under the league regulations. But what happens if you have a team in France and a team in the UK, and one owner owns both of those teams? Theoretically, there's no issue until those teams potentially could play in the same competition together. So let's just say both qualified for the Champions League. The query then is: is that um, for the integrity of the competition? You know, sports fans and um, uh, administrators and stakeholders generally want to make sure that the only considerations impacting on team success are those that are on the football pitch, that every team is going for success and is going to win particular matches because logically and rationally it is in their own incentive interest to be able to do that. Now, when off-field considerations could take its toll, for example, let's just say that both of those teams in England and France were in the same Champions League group. They played each other, one team had won, and one team was bottom and one team was going for that second qualification spot. And it was in the owner's interest to make sure that that English team qualified at the expense of the French team, who were never going to qualify anyway because they were out of the competition, for example. You know, the risk is is that that sporting integrity issue, which is the owners advise the French coach that they must lose that game because they need to make sure that the English team advances, which has logical and rational implications, but from a sporting success and integrity perspective becomes very damaging. So ultimately, a lot of the time it can be <clears throat> whether the owners have decisive influence over the running of two separate clubs. And if they do, there is the possibility that the club that has effectively the lower qualification coefficient wouldn't be able to participate in that competition that both teams had entered into. Would you, would you support multi-club ownership as a principle then? Because you might... Even when there are these, these edge cases, there's always that lingering doubt, I guess, in a way. You know, you might even find a case where, in your French UK club analogy, that French team has the ability within their own competition to, let's say, knock PSG out of a cup or knock PSG out of Champions League places. Could that UK club then loan a player across? And, you know, it, it, with football being so global, it, you could get these murky issues. Do, do you think even it should be allowed in the first place? Well, the, the, I think the most important thing always is transparency. So, transparency of approach a lot of the time. So, again, it might be, you know, interlinking issues with financial fair play where a player is transferred from the French club to the English club at a certain amount of money. Maybe it's because the English club needs to pay a certain amount of receive a certain amount of money to comply with FFP and or vice versa or maybe that player is provided an undervalue because actually they don't have the money to be able to afford to pay so um, there are lots of those type of issues at play ultimately my, my view is I don't think um, companies should be fettered in their ability to be able to purchase clubs in different countries but they have to understand the consequences of what happens if those clubs are playing in the same competition and it's really more or less been enshrined um, through um, the European Commission through CAS, case law etc that ultimately those integrity issues are fundamental to competition and those restrictions are deemed proportionate because of the ultimate aim for the integrity of competition is you know it's tantamount Thanks for listening to today's podcast. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Football Law. 
read my blogs, and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, www.danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundee Football Podcast. Like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably like my book, Dundee, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. Yes, a bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All the links are in the podcast show notes. Thanks for listening and please join me again.